This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre. It tries to find an answer. Caroline, uh, what will it be this week? Uh, unbelievable? Unexplainable? Macabre? Bizarre? <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit of all. Oh, that's fantastic. That's the best kind of story. What are we what are we talking about this week? Well, Sean, finding the perfect piece of meaningful jewelry can be difficult. Uh yeah, as uh, as anyone who has shopped for an engagement ring for his uh, lady uh, will know. Or gentlemen or them. Uh, yes, of course. Yes, uh, you mentioned you very lovingly picked out my engagement ring, and I know it took you a lot of research to choose exactly the stones you wanted and the setting and the cut and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm really relieved I didn't have to do that part. Uh, Yeah, um, it felt like you shouldn't. It felt like something that I should uh, try to take on. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and that experience was fairly average. Of course, though, the, the ring is extremely special. Um, engagement rings are bought every day. So imagine the difficulty of choosing items for royalty or making incredibly intricate pieces for the rich and powerful of the world. This week, we'll be discussing some of those very pieces and more so the stories of curses attached to them. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love a curse on this uh, podcast. I still wake up in, in a cold sweat, as you know, next to me. Wake up in a cold sweat thinking about Toot and Kamun. <laughs> yeah, I love curses. I think my favorite's probably fuck. Wait. Oh, those kinds. I think bastard son of a bitch is pretty good. <laughs> like when you combine all that into one. Yeah, well, you know, that's if you can combine it. I'll, I'll allow it. Superstitions about gemstones and jewelry have existed just about as long as gemstone jewelry itself has. On the one hand, there are many kinds of jewelry that are meant to specifically ward off evil. Uh, Many of you listening will be very familiar with the evil eye necklaces or bracelets, rings. Like the, is this the Italian horn one? No, that's that's a good luck thing. The evil eye looks like a dark blue circle with a lighter blue eye design within it, uh, usually on glass. These symbols are meant to take any negative energy directed at you and basically repel them back to the bad intentioner, representing karmic payback. Uh, the one I was thinking of is usually on like a white tank top. What? The little gold horn. Oh, <laughs> You mean a wife beater? <laughs> no, that's racist. Oh, okay. Uh, yes. So these are, these are symbols commonly used, and um, and and they're pretty much everywhere. You can even get them at like Forever Twenty One on bracelets and things like that. 
In Portuguese culture, we have the figish symbol, which looks like a little hand with its fist and the thumb between the index and middle fingers. This is also supposed to ward off the evil eye as well, and is popularly worn on a necklace. It also is the thing you do when uh, you've got someone's nose. <laughs> yes. And I also read that it's also like a obscene gesture. Uh, it's supposed to represent a vagina. That was never in the Portuguese lexicon for it, I don't think. Strictly anti-evil eye. Gotcha. As as you might imagine for someone with my like intense dad and uncle energy. <laughs> oh, the first thing is got your nose for well, I, you. I've, I've, I've made off with a lot of noses over the years. That's all. You know, sometimes you forget to return them. You got pockets full of noses. God, you're such a dad. Crystals, of course, do similar to warding off evil. You have black tourmaline pendants to ward off negativity or rose quartz uh, to attract love. All do you remember that uh, the guy from the Browns uh, on, on that Hard Knocks season, Devin Kajust? Uh, that's my boy. Uh, what kind of crystal did he use to ward off that starting job? Wow. I will not take Devin Kajust slander in this house unless he did something very problematic I don't know about. No, not that I know of. He's a very, he seems like a very sweet man. <laughs> he seems like a very sweet man, and I it, loved him on that show. a good athlete. Yeah. So even if the, the crystals didn't work for him in that situation, uh, a lot of people have attested to their power. All of the birthstones have legends around them, uh, including my own, which is aquamarine, said to be the treasure of mermaids with the power to keep sailors safe. The treasure of mermaids. Yeah, and it's pretty apt because I love the sea, so I like that. Uh, since we know that mermaids were probably manatees... Well, let's not spoil it for our future very scary mermaids episode. <laughs> <laughs> so... Apparently, some kinds of jewelry has the power to attract the baddest of vibes as well. <clears throat> For example, I've been told that opals, some of my most favorite stones, have a whole variety of negative superstitions surrounding them. And I think everyone knows opals are those usually milky white stones with like a rainbow of flecks in them. They're beautiful. A brief list of these negative superstitions, according to maxopals.com. Wait, this, this is like a website promoting opals? You'd think they'd want to keep this information hidden away. Well, you know, knowledge is power. White opals are unlucky unless worn by someone born in October or with diamonds. Well, you were like, October is your favorite. So do you think you get a pass? I will say my ex did give me a ring with an opal on it, and he's my ex, so probably not. Well, yeah, but did anything bad befall you? Uh, it would certainly befell the relationship, I guess. Yeah, sure, but you just got to kick that guy loose. That was a good luck ring. <laughs> well, Sean, it brought me to you, and that's the best luck in the world. I mean, yeah, pretty much, right? I, I ain't going <laughs> to speak hate right now. Uh they're very unlucky in engagement rings. So, again, kind of with the same idea. Opals will lose their shine if the owner dies, and they will turn pale if in the presence of poison. And I've also heard that it's unlucky to give or accept a gift of opal as well. So does, is that one of those things where, like, because they believed that medieval kings would just like like drop a bunch of opals into their food and then go like ah ye see 
I'm happy you asked, Sean. Nope, no poison doth be in it, sire. Yes, the the myth about poison is particularly interesting because I definitely came across that in my research uh, way back on Renaissance poisons. Check out that episode. Yeah. I can't trace it back to the exact monarch because then I'd have to just go read that book again. But I definitely read that some um, royalty would wave over or dip opal jewelry in food or drink to make sure they weren't poisoned, assuming it would turn pale if they were. Uh Please tell me that particular ruler eventually died of poison. I I would have to go back and check uh, if they expected that to work and they really were being poisoned. As you said, I'm sure they were in for a rude awakening. But these particular superstitions about opals seem to have some basis in history. Thanks to BlackStarOpal.com, again, another pro-opal site, it seems, we find that, quote, in 1829, author Sir Walter Scott wrote a novel called Anne of Gierstein, Gierstein, Stein, I don't know, <laughs> uh, in which a character named the Baroness of Arnheim wears an opal talisman with supernatural powers. According to the story, the Baroness dies when a drop of holy water falls onto the opal and drains the stone of its color. So it seems that uh, that's where some of the more modern supernatural elements around opals, including the whole losing the shine when the owner dies bit, comes from. It's just a novel? Yeah. According to the site's analysis, lucky for Scott, his book was very popular. Unfortunately for opal, people at that time began to associate opals with bad luck and death, and amazingly, sales of the gemstone dropped by 50% and remained low for 20 years after publication. This, to me, sounds like Big Opal, uh, <laughs> you know, trying to pass off their unlucky stones here. Big Opal. That, that's what I'm getting from this. They're like, no, don't don't look at us. It, uh, it Big Opal's my favorite drag queen. Probably just everyone read that one book, right, guys? <laughs> right? Well, all this to say, the idea of cursed stones and jewelry has been around for quite a long time. We've even covered one of these pieces before, Rudolph Valentino's supposedly cursed ring uh, ah. on our Haunted Hollywood episode. Now, that one, that was quite a curse. That killed everyone who, like, ever owned that ring, right? Pretty much. Didn't go well for them. Sometimes these stories uh, behind these pieces can be traceable to specific sources, like the superstitions surrounding Opal or Valentino's jewelry. So let's get into some of the most famously cursed pieces of all time and see if we can find those sources. Yes, please. We'll begin with a truly stunning piece. And I suggest looking these up a while or after you listen to the show, just for a little bit of extra oomph. This is the Delhi Purple Sapphire. That's D-E-L-H-I, like India. This stone is really gorgeous, uh, but unfortunately, it's not an actual sapphire. Uh, a purple sapphire would be amazing and rare, and they do exist, but this in particular is a misnamed amethyst. Okay, well, all right. Are, are, am, I don't know if amethysts are worth more or less than sapphires usually. Oh, definitely less. I have amethyst upstairs. Okay. <laughs> but they're really pretty. And this is a particularly beautiful amethyst. Yeah, it's got like a nice almost sort of caramel ribbon right through the middle of it. Not caramel colored, but, um, you know, a little darker ribbon running right through the uh, middle of the stone. Mm. And it looks like it's set into, what is this, a bangle? 
perhaps, perhaps, according to GemSelect, quote, the earliest known whereabouts of the Delhi purple sapphire was thought to have been India, where it was looted from the Temple of Indra during the horrific Indian mutiny of 1857. Ironically, the temple was devoted to the Hindu god of war and weather, and it is strongly believed that it is through this theft from the ancient idol a curse was cast. So it's very Indiana Jones. I hope all of the events following are like either violent deaths (laughs) or weather related, like this guy got picked up by a tornado. He got struck by lightning. Well, the story goes on to say, quote, The sapphire was brought to England by Colonel W. Ferris, a Bengal cavalryman, who would go on to regret taking the precious stone home with him. Soon after returning to England, the entire Ferris family seemed to be beset by health and financial trouble. Oh, I regret ever bringing that stone home with me. At least it's a sapphire and not, you know, an amethyst or something like that. Oh, to think I would have wasted my whole life on an an amethyst. (laughs) (laughs) They blamed their problems on a series of failed investments made by Mr. Ferris and his son, which left the family in near financial ruin. Things took a grave turn for the worse when a friend of the Ferris family unexpectedly committed suicide while in possession of the sapphire. Oh, what do you know? He had my old... That's funny. How did he get a hold of my old (laughs) sapphire? Yeah, I don't know why this guy had it. Like, I I like to imagine he was holding it and he was like, well, I'm going to go kill myself now. (laughs) I don't know why he had it. Or like in a Twilight Zone episode, like he stiffens very suddenly, you know, as soon as his fingers touch the, the stone. Yeah, but this guy killed himself, so... That would have to be part of it. He can't just keel over. No, no, no. He stiffens suddenly and a, a new brain has taken hold and he oh. goes home and, uh, uh, you know, does the does the thing. Yeah. Jumps off a, a bathtub or whatever people do. Jumps off a bathtub. Well, this is a classic format of curse stories where the curse passes around to everyone associated with the object, location, whatever, and wreaks destruction in their wake. Just think about, as you mentioned before, Sean, uh, King Tut's curse from our earlier episode. It's kind of person by person, people who were supposedly involved with the opening of Tut's tomb kept dropping dead. Even suicide is attributed to the curse in these types of situations, even though that's a choice, obviously. Um, You know, it it all's under the whole thing of curses. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and was this curse similar? I mean, did everyone did, did was it an unbroken line of deaths uh, for the for the Delhi Sapphire? Well, the next owner of the purple sapphire was author Edward Heron Allen, who came into possession of it in 1890. Heron Allen himself spoke of immediately experiencing a series of misfortune and bad luck after receiving the stone. So he definitely believed in it. As a kind friend, I guess, he gifted it to two of his acquaintances to get rid of it, feeling oh. it had bad luck. If if you think that, then put it in the trash, surely, right? Why, would you, why wouldn't you just do that? Well, those uh, friends were met with bad luck, and they returned it back to him. So Heron Allen claimed to have then thrown it into Regent's Canal in England, only for it to return to his possession about three months later after being discovered by a dredger, 
who returned it to a jeweler who recognized the piece and brought it back to Hiran Allen, oh. who was like, oh, shit. Imagine the, I'm, I'm, for some reason, I'm picturing him as Kelsey Grammer. And just <laughs> imagine the color draining from his face. My just, God. Good God. <laughs> it is the sapphire. Niles. <laughs> In 1904, Heron Allen sealed the purple sapphire in a box and shipped it to his bankers with instructions to lock it away until after his death. Eventually, it was bestowed to the London National History Museum after, you know, he died. Oh, it didn't get opened in a Geraldo Rivera <laughs> special? No, he, he died in 1943, and, and so it went on, though he did leave a dramatic note with it, reading in part... Whoever shall then open it shall first read it out this warning and then do as he pleases with the jewel. My advice to him or her is cast it into the sea. It's a little dramatic, but he's an author, so. I, why send someone else to do your dirty work? I mean, even <laughs> after your death, just just throw it into the sea yourself. Well, this note was found fairly recently by a museum curator, which is when the legend of the purple sapphire began to spread anew. As for the continuance of the curse, Gem Select has an update on that, too. Um, let, let me guess. Big, big uh, amethyst is back <laughs> to, tell us, uh, to tell us there's no such thing as curses. In 2004, the gem was in the possession of John Whitaker, a member of the Natural History Museum, who was tasked with transporting the Purple Sapphire to the Heron Allen Society for an event. During the journey, Mr. Whitaker and his wife were engulfed in a dramatic thunderstorm. Weather. Oh my God, it's all coming together. Which trapped them in their car. Do you see how happy I am? <laughs> Mr. Whitaker claimed it to be the most horrific experience of his life. He's led a soft and painless <laughs> life. Whitaker was tasked with transporting the sapphire a second time. Look at your hands, Whitaker. They've never worked a hard day in their lives. <laughs> and after this second time, he fell violently st sick with a stomach bug. And then a third time, which, uh, you know, three times, shame on you, I guess. Once, twice, three times a stomach bug. Three times a amethyst curse i guess uh, just before he was due to take the gem he fell in pain and passed a kidney stone what? <laughs> did he have a kidney stone in the brewing? moments before that or? brewing i i he fell in pain after it so i feel like he was like oh well here's the amethyst again <gasps> i feel like it's usually a long process i the idea well of, it started after he got that stone the idea of then he fell in pain and passed a kidney stone is horrifying <laughs> just shot one out just like i think i'm oh oh no <laughs> ah! <laughs> Yeah, so the museum still has the gem in its possession, but it's now safely tucked away under lock and key, and presumably Whitaker will not pick it up anymore. And, and presumably he's drinking lots more water now. Well, let's hope. Next, we'll go to a fascinating tale surrounding not a gem, but a watch. Oh. Because it counts, it's yeah, jewelry. Yeah, no, it's, it's jewelry. <laughs> this piece is known as the Henry... The, the only piece of jewelry men are really like a hundred percent get away with wearing i don't know i, I don't mind a necklace a, a bracelet obviously a ring because you have your wedding ring that's true the wedding ring is the is the i the think one. it's more of a male thing to not want to wear jewelry yeah but that's because we feel like we can't unless we're like ringo star official position of the ain't it scary podcast wear your jewelry guys yeah let, Enjoy. That, let that freak flag fly <laughs> This piece is known as the Henry Graves Super Complication. 
by the elite watchmakers Patek Philippe and has the distinction of being the most complicated watch ever made to that point uh, without computer assistance. I love how complicated is the benchmark. Super, com- super complication. They're like, this is the most complicated. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't give you any extra features, well, but no, there are it does. so many gears to get this watch to the place it needs to be. It does give you extra features, actually, Sean, which I'm about to go into. Yeah, like the curse. <laughs> That's why it's super complicated. And this super complication was commissioned by... Henry Graves Jr., an American businessman and railroad tycoon, in 1925 from Patek Philippe. God, I'm sure Henry was a blast at parties. <laughs> it featured a record 24 complications, which are a thing. A complication being any function that exists in addition to telling time. Yeah, I think you told me this last time, Henry. Oh, you know what? I'm going to go check out that plate of cocktail weenies. <laughs> so... These special functions, which numbered 24, they could be like telling the date, month, moon phase, things like that. Anything that's not the hours, minutes, and seconds. This crazy amount of complications is what gave the watch its title, as you can imagine, the super complication. The watch also features a double dial, so one on each side. It kind of looks like a pocket watch. Uh, with one side showing a large celestial chart of the nighttime sky over New York City's Central Park, which would change. How big is this watch? Is it? It's it's, it's a thick boy. Is it's it a, a thick thick um, pocket watch? Yeah, it's not okay. Not a wristwatch. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would also show show um, sunrise and sunset times for Manhattan, where Graves lived. And then the other side showed the date, month, day of the week, other information. So it all added up, along with the clock, to 24 complications. The watch took seven years to make, but apparently created plenty of havoc once Graves received it in 1933. And this wasn't mass-produced. This is one thing for this one guy. Exactly. Soon after receiving the watch, Graves' best friend died, followed by the tragic death of Graves' son in a car crash. Well, he wanted complications. Wow. Don't victim blame. It eventually sold to Sheikh Saud bin Muhammad Al Thani, a member of the Qatari royal family who dealt with years of financial troubles until giving it to Sotheby's to auction in 2014. Two days before the watch was sold for $15 million, and I think that's in pounds, Sheikh Saud bin Muhammad Al Thani suddenly died. He was only 48. He was the winner of the auction, sorry, or the guy selling? Selling it. So this is two days before it sold. I'm, I'm right after the $15 million auction. I'm maybe looking at his uh, kids and wife, but uh, continue. <laughs> no, well... It's unclear where the curse originated from with this watch, but Graves, uh, the original owner, definitely believed that the holy grail of watches, as it's called, was unlucky. After experiencing tragedies while in possession of the piece, Graves decided to throw the timepiece off his boat into a lake in upstate New York to get himself rid of it. There you go. A to B. You, you go right to the... the That is the solution to this problem. <laughs> well, his daughter convinced him not to do it at the last minute which is how it landed in the sheik's hands what has he never seen titanic you just open your hands it's not that hard (laughs) an anonymous collector bought the watch at the 2014 sotheby's auction so we may never know whether the curse continues or not because it was an anonymous um 
It'd be a real shame if the most complicated watch in the world never resurfaced. It would. It, it really would. And we'll return with more stories of cursed bling after the break. Oh. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Boy, it's great to have sponsors. I just, uh, that break was one of the best. It's one of the best we've had. Let's hope there's an ad in it. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah. It would, it would, <laughs> if I say that after one of the ones that does, like it just doesn't insert anything. That'd be very funny. Anyway, uh, that would be good too, because you came back to us so fast. Welcome back. <laughs> and uh, Caroline, we have a little bit more cursed jewelry. Oh, yeah. Maybe this is some jewelry my freaking wife won't be bugging me about, you know? <laughs> you know, fellas? Yeah. Mm. Gross. Yep. <laughs> Next, we're going back to all that glitters with the tale of the Black Prince's Ruby. Uh, Carrie, if I may quote my close personal friend RuPaul, why it gotta be Black Princess Ruby? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Much like the purple sapphire, it's not actually a ruby at all, but rather a 170 carat and I don't know how to pronounce this, cabochon spinal. That sounded pretty pretty good. <laughs> this is a mineral that owes its deep and beautiful coloration to chromium. Chromio? The disco? The neo-disco group? No. Chromium. Oh, I see. <laughs> it, it's a very interesting looking stone, and by interesting I mean it kind of looks like a piece of plastic. Yeah, that's a, that's a real mineral. The so-called ruby was believed to have been mined in Kuilal. These are famous Balas ruby mines in present-day Afghanistan and Tajikistan. Has a long history, being first recorded in the 14th century when it was stolen from Prince Abu Said of the Moorish Kingdom of Granada by Don Pedro the Cruel, the ruler of Seville, Spain. Now, as any uh, listener who is Google imaging these things as we go uh, knows, and as I just, uh, as I know, um, this thing is dropped into a couple of crowns over the course of uh, history, huh? Mm -hmm. So, so uh, when does that start? Well, Diamond Buzz tells us the story of the stolen stone as follows, quote, Prince Said was going to surrender to King Don Pedro when he was overtaking Granada, but Pedro had other plans. In 1366, Don Pedro welcomed Prince Said and his attendants to discuss the terms of his surrender and promptly murdered him. Well, that's, uh, that's one way to take a guy's diamond. It's one way to get the nickname The Cruel. After searching the prince's body, Don Pedro found a large red gemstone the size of an egg and took it into his possession. It was believed that the cruel murder sparked a curse that followed Don Pedro from that day. Moreover, the curse was said to bring misfortune and death to those who owned the gem. Oh, so this curse didn't come stock. This was because of the murder? Because of the murder. To, I mean, 
part of the spoils was the stones. So that makes sense. It's usually part of like an options pack. <laughs> Shortly after Pedro acquired the gem, his brother Henry of Trastamara declared war on Castile for the right to rule. You're doing you're doing wonderfully with all these pronunciations, Carol. Well, Spanish is a little easier for me, but uh, yeah, I'm trying my best. Don Pedro had to ally with Edward of Woodstock, also known as the Black Prince. Oh! To defeat Henry of Trastamara and gave Edward the gemstone as payment in 1367. So then the Black Prince owned it. The titular Black Prince, you say? <laughs> mm-hmm. Clearly, the stone was already figuratively and, I don't know, probably literally covered in blood. Um, it is blood red. And it, it, the more I look at it, it looks more and more like a, like a, a half-melted lollipop. It's making me hungry. <laughs> the stone then reappears in history in the hands of Henry V, who was king of England from 1413 until his death in 1422. The gem joined Henry's story on October 25th, 1415, at the Battle of Agincourt, where King Henry V appeared dressed in a helmet garnished with a crown set with rubies, sapphires, and pearls. The Black Prince's ruby had a prominent spot on this crown. Yep, I think I'm looking at that crown. Mm -hmm. During the battle, the helmet that was under the crown or part of the crown uh, saved the king's life and helped him win a victory over the French forces. Well, that's what helmets do. <laughs> yes. And since then, it, along with the ruby, has passed through the hands of the British royal family. And yeah, so that's cool, right? I mean, it didn't bring bad luck to Henry during the battle. So they're like, it was unlucky, but we were so good. <laughs> Well, think you, of it... You put this thing on my hat, and now it's a good luck term. Think of it this way. Many of the people who have worn the Imperial Crown of England since then haven't exactly been bestowed with good luck since Henry V's reign. Uh, you have King Richard III, who was killed in the Battle of Bosworth Field, ironically by a strike to a helmetless head, and then his crown, which had fallen off, literally being placed on Henry VI upon his victory... Uh, you have Hen Henry VIII, who we've oh, discussed previously. Henry. Fantastic Henry. Yeah, he's unable to get the son he do so desired, and he killed two wives in the process. And, of course, there's King Charles I, who was beheaded in 1649 for treason. Yeah, Char you, Charles made... Th those were all guys <laughs> who made terrible, cruel mistakes. Well, heavy is the head that wears the crown, I suppose. Yeah, but I don't know if it's because of the big <laughs> plastic diamond in the middle, ruby in the middle of the crown. Perhaps, um, well, it didn't help. <laughs> we'll end today with the extended story of the most famous cursed jewel of all time, the Hope Diamond. The Hope Diamond? Mm-hmm. This is a stunning and gigantic blue stone that is often called the most famous jewel in the world. Yes, it is a gorgeous blue diamond in the, um, in, in the Jay-Z mold. <laughs> can I say that if I ever become a drag queen, which is uh, not likely in the cards for me, I would be Blue Diamond Phillips? But that's amazing. <laughs> um yeah, I think you're missing a couple of the usual requirements to be a drag queen. Yes, one or two. Uh, 
the Hope Diamond is a bonkers 45.52 carats with a fancy dark grayish blue color, which is created by traces of boron within the stone. And that makes it incredibly rare. A blue diamond is very, very rare. And it's huge, too. Huge, yes. The earliest records of the diamond, according to History Calling, which is a great YouTube channel, you should check it out, point to it being discovered in India during the mid-17th century. But further details than that about its origins are sketchy. It was originally discovered at about 112 carats, that's double the size, in a rough triangular shape, and it was owned by merchant traveler Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. Tavernier sold it to King Louis XIV of France in around either 1668 or 1669. You better be able to retire on that if you oh, sell a yeah. if you sell a fist-sized <laughs> diamond to a king. Yeah, I think he got um, 200,000 livres from that, but I, d- I don't know how much that would be now. Probably it, a lot. It was 250,000? 200,000. 200,000 then livre? Yeah. He, he, yeah. A it, lot. It, it was all of the money. Yeah. Uh, Louis XIV had it cut to a 67-ish sized carat, um, of, and it was like imperfection-free and, and a faceted stone, so that's why it's so much smaller. This is by 1673, and this is when it became known as the French Blue, or Blue Diamond of the Crown. Blue Diamond Phillips. Blue Diamond Phillips. Eventually, the stone passed to Louis XV, and then Louis XVI. We just talked about that guy, didn't we? Whatever happened to him? I don't think anything bad happened to him. Let's move along. Let's move along. (laughs) Anyway, Louis XV had it set into an insignia meant to be worn only by the king, and that's how Louis XVI had received it. The crown jewels were stolen by revolutionaries at the outbreak of the French Revolution. They were liberated, but continue. Well, okay. The French blue itself was then stolen from Paris in 1792 and disappeared. Yeah, uh, if you read the rest of that revolution story, the French kind of did blue itself. Okay. Louis and his wife, Marie Antoinette, had their appointment with Madame Guillotine the next year. See last episode. <laughs> yeah, see our very previous episode for uh, for the... Did you know that connection when you started researching this episode yes and i'll mention why later it has to do with james cameron in 1812 a london jeweler named john francilion somehow came into possession of what definitely appears to have been the same diamond suspiciously 20 years after the french blue had been stolen which is exactly when the statute of limitations for crimes committed during the revolution had expired well that's um so he started showing this thing off Just when it was legal to. Excellent. Very convenient. (laughs) The diamond um, at this point had been cut down further to around 45 carats, likely to hide its origins. Um, So this is why there was some question as to whether this was the same thing. It's the same diamond. It's pretty accepted that the French blue and the Hope diamond are one and the same. Sometime between 1817 and 1823, it was suggested that British monarch King George IV had obtained the diamond with a 1822 newspaper report stating he had purchased a violet-colored diamond. I don't know if this is violet-covered. Well, this is, that's kind of what they would call it back in the day, a dark blue. So, maybe. Could be. 
Somehow, eventually, the diamond reached the possession of Henry Philip Hope in 1832, where, of course, the modern-day Hope Diamond got its name. Oh, I, I thought it was just called that after, like, the concept of, uh, of I hope wishing we find for something it. better. Yeah. <laughs> the diamond remained with the Hope family for the next 62 years until being sold due to serious financial problems. It passed through the hands of two famous jewelers over the years, Pierre Cartier and Harry Winston, as well as famous socialite of the era, Evelyn Walsh McLean. God, we, you're crazy if you wait until you're in uh, dire financial straits to sell the... Yeah. What's it worth now? A, a, a bazillion dollars? <laughs> Probably. Just just a gajillion bazillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Winston was the one who eventually donated the stone to the Smithsonian Institute in 1958, and funny story about that, he just sent it in the mail in like a normal package. Like a like a UPS envelope? Yep, yep just like a brown paper envelope. Uh, and the Smithsonian is who owns it to this day and currently displays it in the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. I was pretty nervous about uh, your engagement ring going through the mail. Exactly, yeah. Now imagine it's the biggest diamond ever. <laughs> I don't know if this is the biggest, but it's it's a beaut. It's a big beaut. So where's the curse? Okay, that's a pretty straightforward story. Here's the, the legend that seems to be most repeated about the Hope Diamond. It begins with it being torn from the forehead of an Indian idol. Okay. Which is the supposed origin of the curse. So and that's, same kind of idea. That's like their reality singing show over there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was then owned by a man um, who was referred to, I think, as being Tavernier, who was later torn to death by rabid dogs. Okay. Louis XIV now, was said... He was torn to death by rabid dogs during the revolution? This is part of... No, this would be earlier, but this is part of the legend. Um, Louis XIV was said to have given it to his mistress, Madame de Montespan, and eventually Louis XVI gave it to Marie Antoinette, where it somehow disappeared after their execution. Later owner Evelyn Walsh McLean's son was killed in a car accident, her husband died in an asylum, and her daughter died of an overdose of sleeping pills in 1946, all after she became the owner of the diamond. The Hope family, too, were supposed to have fallen on hard times after acquiring the diamond, and multiple other owners over the years were murdered, committed suicide, and otherwise died or faced terrible misfortune. Even the postman who delivered the diamond to the Smithsonian in 1958 was hit hard by tragedy. What? That's part of the legend. Does it specify what kind of tragedy? <laughs> well, some of these details are historically true. We'll start from the top. Louis XVI did indeed die while technically owning the gem. In a death that is one of the most famous in European history. Yeah, but like Charles I, I don't think it was a, a curse that got him, exactly. <laughs> the Hopes did fall on hard times, which is why Lord Francis Hope sold it in the first place. And Evelyn Walsh McLean did lose her son to a car accident. Her husband did go broke and end up in a me mental hospital. And her daughter did commit suicide. So all those things happened to Evelyn. Unfortunately, it seems really tough. Is it surprising that somebody who would spend millions of dollars on a, a small rock is not great with money? Well, it's not just the owners, because we're coming back to them. The postman who delivered the diamond to the Smithsonian did 
suffer a series of misfortunes. This feels like a Maury episode. Including his house burning down. In the case of the postman, you (laughs) are the curse. (laughs) His house burned? Yeah, it burned down. Was this a Henry Miller situation? No, it reminds me a little more of the crying boy curse, except he didn't own the diamond. He was just associated with it. Now, against these things that actually did happen, Tavernier was not torn apart by wild dogs, but he rather died in his 80s in Russia in 1689 of natural causes, just chilling in Russia. As noted at the beginning of our story, it's not known exactly where the stone came from, so there's no way to validate whether it was really stolen from a Hindu temple. Yes, Louis XVI came to a very tragic end, but there's no evidence to suggest Marie Antoinette wore the diamond and was somehow cursed that way. She probably wore it, though. Well, the setting in which Louis had received it from Louis XV was only meant to be worn by kings. Oh, right, 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 right. right. So, I mean, it could be a curse by association, like the postman, but yeah. So there's there's no evidence of her, like, wearing it around. There's also the fact that many of the stories of tragic or horrific deaths befalling the owners of the diamond in between, you know, those big names that we mentioned. Also, Louis got his head chopped off first, and then it's like, what, are you not going to chop his wife's head off? (laughs) Okay, we we agree to disagree on that one. Um, Many of these stories can be traced to mostly a book named The Mystery of the Hope Diamond, a 1921 tome by Henry Layford Gates, that was apparently sourced from May Yo or Yohei. Uh, she is the down on her luck ex-wife of Lord Francis Hope himself. Perhaps, perhaps Yo was searching for an explanation as to why her life had fallen apart so dramatically, and the diamond was an easy scapegoat to blame. And just a little fun reference. I mentioned James Cameron. It seems very, very clear to me. The heart of the ocean. The heart of the ocean diamond is heavily based on the Hope Diamond. Um, it's a. It's ta- ta- It's talked about as being a blue, very rare diamond in the movie, not a sapphire. Oops! Uh, I referenced it uh, earlier with with the throwing yeah. necklaces into the ocean. Yeah. It's pictured surrounded by diamonds on a diamond chain in the movie, which um, is commonly how the Smithsonian will display it, except these diamonds are friggin' humongous. Yeah, they're, uh, are you talking about the ones in Titanic or the ones on the actual Hope Diamond? In the setting, when they when they display it with the necklace part, sometimes they just display the stone. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's, it's humongous. stupid. Yeah, it's like 45 white diamonds just on the chain part. And, and then more e- on the setting. And each of those is like, if Huge. you saw it on a ring, you'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and I kind of forget if this was in the movie or not. This probably was. Um, there is a bit where they talk about how the diamond was cut into that heart shape because it was worn during someone's beheading, like a king's beheading. I don't know if they mentioned Louis specifically. And it, it cut the diamond and into a heart shape. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so the guillotine blade was made of also diamond? I don't think they went into it that much. <laughs> but yes. So was or is the Hope Diamond actually curse? Or 
as you kind of mentioned before, Sean, did a series of events fall on the owners of the diamond out of a natural result of their wealth, fame, and notoriety just making them bad with money or more prone to tragedy? Who's to say? Um, I don't personally believe in curses, but I think these stories are very fun. Um, there's a little bit of archaeology, although unfortunately with all of these, the archaeology was like way in the past. Yeah. I love the idea of, I know it was last segment, but I love the idea of a cursed watch be- mm-hmm. because uh, cursed items are almost never new. It seems like it's it's something for... You know, when stuff is disturbed from its longtime resting place or maybe like it's just something that maybe they just don't make curses anymore. They just used to make curses. They don't make curses like they used to. Yeah, this is the the, the freshest item on the list. Um, it was given to Graves in 1933. So, yeah, that's definitely the newest thing by far. Um, the Hope Diamond, of course, has the best longest list of... Uh, of stories. Probably the best claim to a curse as well if you're throwing Louis the Sixteenth in as a cursed person. I'm actually gonna disagree with you there because I don't think again, I, I think that's a pretty Louis Six Louis Sixteen was gonna die <laughs> no matter what happened. Um he was in a ba- he he was in a bad situation there being king at that time. But was it the sa- the sapphire? That was actually the an amethyst. Sapphire, yeah. Was that the one that the guy threw into the canal? And it came back. And it was dredged and came back? <laughs> That's fucked up. Yeah, that is fucked up. Um, and poor Louis, I mean, you know, I, I know you don't think poor Louis, but he had two really bad luck moments with jewelry. One being the Hope Diamond, the other being the affair of the necklace. Uh, yeah, well, well, that was really, again, his wife's thing. Yeah, the Hope Diamond is often attributed to being Marie Antoinette's. I think it's because it's more fun and exotic that way. Well, and because uh, it's she almost loved jewels, I guess it's a that she did. Yeah, but it's also a the doctor was a woman thing. People don't <laughs> think of the king as being the one wearing the jewelry. Mm-hmm. But in France, all those all the nobility were wearing a, a lot of a lot of jewelry. Yeah, and for the Hope Diamond, I've seen it in person before at the Smithsonian, and I'm still standing. But maybe I should knock on wood, just in case. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. No news today. We'll return next week unless there's any breaking stories with an update on the House Congressional Hearing on UFOs. This week, we wanted to give some space to remember the victims of two mass shootings in just the past two weeks, the Buffalo supermarket shooting and the Robb Elementary School shooting. Sean and I live pretty close to Newtown, and the Sandy Hook tragedy is one that still weighs heavily on the minds of everyone around here, 10 years on. Our hearts are with the victims and their families in Buffalo and Uvalde, and our hopes are that some kind of tangible change results from these tragedies. 
It's literally the least the American government can do. Until then, U.S. listeners, write to your representatives, demand change, fight against the thoughts and prayers mindset, and support organizations that will lobby for change. It seems like very little, but it's also the least we can do. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yep. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Something is creeping in, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 